When we talk about the gospel, particularly in evangelism, we generally emphasize the freeness of salvation. And in doing so, we distinguish the true gospel of the Bible from counterfeits that in one way or another tell us that man must contribute something to his salvation in whole or in part. But when we emphasize the freeness of salvation, that's only part of the story. It's free to man, but it is costly to God. Salvation is God's greatest and most costly work. In fact, it costs God far more to save us than to make us. God created everything in the world just simply by speaking, everything in the universe by speaking. It all came into being by the word of his power. But God could not save us by merely speaking the word. God could not pronounce us just merely by speaking as just, but he had to provide a just basis to do so, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And so although the cost of salvation is not borne by the Christian because it could not be, the cost of salvation has profound implications for the way that we view God and salvation and the Christian life. We have moved, as you know, into the second section of the first chapter of Peter's first epistle. And that second section begins with exhortations in verse 13. Exhortations for how we should live if we have been saved by the grace of God, that glorious salvation that was described in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And we are told that we should live in the prospect of Christ's return, verse 13. We should live contrary to our former sinful way of life, verse 14. We should be cultivating godlike holiness, verses 15 and 16. And then Peter gives us the reason why we ought to do these things in verses 17 through 21, which is all one sentence in the Greek language. But he gives us one reason in verse 17. We should do this, number one, because God will judge the deeds of his children someday. And whatever our viewpoint is of the future judgment that awaits God's people, we cannot construct it in such a way that it removes all the element of fear and dread from it. That much is very clear from the word of God. But not only because God will judge the deeds of all of his children someday, but number two, because of the high cost of your salvation. And that's verses 18 and 19, which is our text for this morning. Let me read 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
In our text today, I want us to, number one, see salvation as redemption. Secondly, things that cannot redeem. And thirdly, the only thing that can redeem. Salvation as redemption is presented to us in these verses. And redemption is one important aspect of salvation. Salvation, as I've often told you, is a big word. And it encompasses a lot of smaller concepts. And we need to understand as many of these concepts as we can. We need to understand regeneration. We need to understand propitiation. We need to understand justification and so forth. And as we dwell on each of these terms, we will learn different aspects, different nuances, different parts of salvation, which will help us to understand the whole. But one important part of salvation is the concept of redemption. And evidently, Peter believed that his readers already understood redemption, at least to some degree, because our text in verse 18 begins with the word knowing. You already know this, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Redemption. There are two words used in the New Testament for redeem, redemption, and their various uh, various. Uh, Aspects of those words, various various different cognates, compound words that are built off of these two main ones. But the one that is found in our text is lutrao, and the other one is agorazo. And I know that most of us are not Greek scholars, but some of you are. Some of you are studying the Greek, and that's good for you to be reminded of this. But I think these words are important even for English-speaking Bible students. The word lutrao that is used here means to obtain by paying a ransom, to deliver by paying a price, and great emphasis here upon the price. The word is sometimes translated redeem, it is sometimes translated ransom. The other word, agarazzo, is very similar in meaning, and if there are any nuances between these two, It is only perhaps that agarazzo emphasizes what we are saved from, perhaps a little bit more than lutrao, and lutrao emphasizes what we are saved unto, a little bit more than agarazzo, but that's very minor. But in using this word redemption, there were a number of practices that came to the minds of Peter's readers, both Jews and Gentiles. In the Greek-Roman world, the Gentiles would have been very familiar with the concept of the freeing of a slave, the manumission of a slave. And the way that that was generally carried out is that the price of the slave was paid to the temple of a god or goddess. And the money would be received into the temple, And then from the temple treasury, minus a commission, of course, it would be paid to the owner in the name of the God. And the idea was that this slave was now freed from his or her former owner, but now belonged to the God. It was a fiction, of course, but that was the concept that everyone understood. It's interesting that the price that was paid to the temple 
The Timae is what is also uh, used in the word of God in regard to our redemption by the Lord Jesus Christ. As for example, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul said, And you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. A Timae, the very same concept that is used of the manumission of a slave. The price that is paid to the pagan temple. You are not your own. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's not that you are freed to belong only to yourself. You are freed to belong to the one who paid for you. The one who paid the price. That's the idea in redemption. Of course, the Jews had a number of pictures of redemption in their background. Probably the most prominent one is the one I read this morning in Exodus chapter 12. As the Jews were redeemed, and that's the very word that is used, redeemed from Egyptian bondage by the blood of the Passover lamb. And thereafter, every year, they remembered, they celebrated their redemption, their freedom from bondage in Egypt. They celebrated that with the annual Passover feast as they once again went through the memorial of the shedding of the blood of that lamb and the vicarious nature of that sacrifice that paid the price for their redemption. The Egyptians, who did not have that sacrifice, were destroyed, as you know, by God. But there are many other redemption pictures in the Old Testament scriptures. There was the idea of being freed from indentured servitude sometimes called slavery, but it wasn't exactly the same thing as our idea of slavery. But when a Jewish person got himself into debt and had no other way to pay his debt, he could actually sell himself into indentured servitude. And in effect, what this means is he would, someone would pay him a sum of money for his manual labor for the next X number of years. And he would get that money up front so that he could pay off his debt for his family, but from now on, until he was freed, he was now the servant of the person who had paid that price. But it was possible to be redeemed from this arrangement. We read in Leviticus 25, Now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. To purchase freedom by the payment of a price. That's the idea in redemption. The redemption of the firstborn is also involved. If you were watching or listening carefully to that passage in Exodus chapter 12, you realize that God destroyed the firstborn of all the children or all the uh, Egyptians, but he spared the firstborn of the Israelites and all those who had applied the blood to the lentils over their door and down the side post of their door. But ever after, God considered the firstborn to belong to him. 
Because you see, he had spared them. He had purchased them, as it were, in that arrangement. He took the firstborn of the Egyptians. He spared the firstborn of the Israelites. But after that, they belonged to him. And therefore, there had to be the redemption of the firstborn. Whenever a firstborn male was born into a Jewish family, that male had to be redeemed at a particular price, five shekels, as I recall, so that he could be considered belonging to his family now instead of belonging to God. Now, these are some of the practices that are in the minds of Peter and his readers as he writes these words in our text today in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I think there are basically four elements that are involved in the concept of redemption. And what are they? Number one, a person living in some type of bondage. A slave, a hostage, prisoner of war, someone who has been captured, And the only way for them to be released is by the paying of the required price, a ransom. Number two, a price required to secure his freedom. Number three, a person willing and able to pay the ransom. And number four, a change of status resulting from the transaction. That's what's involved in redemption. A person living in some type of bondage, a price required to secure his freedom, a person willing and able to pay the price and a change of status resulting from the transaction. Now, I probably don't need to elaborate for you how this applies to salvation. We were in bondage to sin. And Peter makes reference to that here. Your aimless conduct. Your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. That's what we were in bondage to. This this sinful condition that we inherited and that was futile. That's the two things that Peter tells us about this condition that we were born into. We inherited this condition and it was a futile condition. Beliefs and practices that came to us from ancestral precedent The way has been beaten broad and smooth by the feet of many generations, said John Lilly. A way that was inherited from our ancestors in a way that is futile, a word that means empty, unfruitful, useless, unprofitable, void of positive results. Because the ancestral way of life, no matter how venerated, is worthless. Peter had already made reference to that in verse 14 when he said, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, your former way of life. And now he tells us that former way of life was inherited. You got it when you were born. You inherited it. Now that actually applies to many aspects of our life. First and most obviously, it applies to our inherited depravity. We are born sinners, are we not? Because of Adam's fall in the garden, then every man and woman born into the human family since Adam, save the Lord Jesus Christ, who was brought into this world by way of a virgin's conception. But every other human being has been born sinful, has inherited 
the sinful nature of our fathers. Traced all the way back to Adam. What an inheritance. But that's the truth. And we need to understand that and need to be able to reckon with that. This is part of this feudal conduct received from our fathers. Aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. This inherited depravity. We are born into sin. We go away from our mother's womb speaking lies. But not only is there inherited depravity, but there's also, for nearly everybody, some kind of inherited religion. In the case of the Gentiles that Peter was writing to, of course, there was the Gentile paganism. (coughs) They were born into a family. They were born into a community. They were born into a religious heritage, and they were taught to worship in a certain way, and there were certain customs and traditions that were attached to their religion from their ancestors that were traditions of long-standing and very deeply ingrained, and these came down to them. But that has to be set aside. Of course, for the Jews, there was also a traditional religion, one that had been originally delivered by God himself, and so it was good, but because of the way it had been corrupted by the infusion of man-made traditions, it had become something very different from what God had delivered. And yet it also had a very strong hold upon the people who were born into Jewish families, and they had this mixture of divine revelation along with human tradition, and it became a very strong bond. An inherited tradition that bound them, that blinded them, that deceived them, that directed them along the path of destruction. Because, you see, false religion is a bondage that needs redemption every bit as much as our sinful practices need to be redeemed, or that we need to be redeemed from them. And we need to understand that even those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and who have come out of the darkness of bondage into the light of God's word, you need to realize that your children may very well view your religion as more of an inherited practice than as an inward reality. Any aspect of religion, even the true religion, can become a corrupting tradition if the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ is not apprehended by faith and by the work of the Holy Spirit in the soul. And so even children growing up in, in, in truly Christian homes to born-again parents and in good Bible-believing churches can nevertheless be very much be bound in some kind of religious tradition that until the Holy Spirit breaks in upon it is a form of darkness and deception to them. A way of life received by tradition from your fathers. And in addition, there are the inherited customs and cultural values that all of us have. They come into all of our lives by virtue of, of who our parents were, where we were born, what community, what country, what what uh, people we are born into. And all of these traditions and mores become very deeply ingrained as part of our thinking. They're very deeply ingrained in our personality and many times are a great barrier to our coming to the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Missionaries have to 
combat these ancestral traditions many times. And the problem of the missionary working with these things can go uh, two different ways. I'll never forget how how amused and a little bit saddened I was many, many years ago visiting a missionary in a particular country and uh, realizing that he had um, imported hymn books for his people to sing from, from his home church, and the title across the front of it was All-American Hymnal. I don't think that was very wise because we're not trying to make Americans out of these people. We're trying to make Christians out of these people. And actually, in, in the heritage and the tradition of the people that he was ministering among, there was a wonderful Christian tradition that had been largely lost in the last two or three generations, but nevertheless, it was there. And how much better to reach back into their own past and bring out these uh, godly hymns of their own own uh, people and nation and custom and culture rather than trying to make them all Americans. But you see, he was he was a victim of his own cultural uh, cultural traditions, having been born into a certain family and to a certain uh, church and to a certain hymnal. He thought that was the best one. That was the right one. That's the one that everybody ought to use. That's an ancestral tradition. But on the other hand, you find missionaries who sometimes want to make very unwise compromises with people because they will attribute their unbiblical practices to ancestral customs. And after all, we're not trying to make them Americans. We, we, uh, we're trying to make them followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we actually have missionaries who sometimes say, well, in America it's the custom that um, a man can only have one wife. Here it's your custom that he can have up to four. That's okay. That's your custom. That's your tradition. And I've even heard of missionaries who say, well, uh, come to church and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can continue to have the shelf gods in your house and worship your ancestral gods, as long as you understand they're not really gods, but that's just part of your ancestral tradition. No, no, no. Those are the aspects of ancestral tradition that have to yield to the truth of God's word. We all, in our, in our traditions and ancestral background, have things that are contrary to the Word of God. Many things that are contrary to the Word of God. They're ingrained within us because we are all part of a fallen humanity. No matter what people, no matter what country, no matter what culture we have come from. And sometimes these things are very difficult to deal with. Some want their church, their Christian church, to reinforce culture, not change it. It's very unfortunate, is it not, that a lot of the racism that we have in America has actually been wrongly reinforced by the Christian religion, by a misuse of the Christian religion and a misuse of the Bible. The people who actually distorted the word of God in order to propagate racism instead of dealing honestly with the word of God and realizing that Christ destroys all barriers between Jews and Gentiles, between black and white, between all races, all peoples, all those barriers are now gone in Christ Jesus, but instead many times a reinforcement of the strong ancestral traditions are propagated in Christian churches. And that's just one example. 
we struggled a number of years ago to remove something from our church covenant that really we realized was a strong cultural tradition. It was not a reflection of what the Bible actually teaches. But you know, that was one of the most difficult things we ever dealt with because ancestral traditions can many times grip us more strongly than the truth of God's word. Shame that it should be so. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians who say that their supreme allegiance is to the Bible, but sometimes those ancestral traditions can grip us more strongly than the word of our Lord and Savior himself. It's not just a problem in pagan lands. But if we have been redeemed, we have been freed from our old way of life to a new way of life. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Not with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct, from, Greek word ek, out from, here's the strong emphasis on what we are redeemed from, out of, out of this life, this aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but instead unto something, unto Christ, unto a new way of living. We are freed from our sin. We are freed from our ancestral religions. We are freed from our ancestor, ancestral cultures and traditions and mores wherever they contradict the word of God. We are freed from sinful practices and habits and wrong ways of thinking. We are freed unto the Lord Jesus Christ to freely serve him, willingly serve him, voluntarily serve him out of gratitude as our new Lord and Master. We are no longer in bondage to sin, for he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the sinner free. We are no longer in bondage to empty religion, for he gives us the truth of how to worship God and the only way to approach him, which is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are no longer in bondage to community customs and cultural mores. We are free, freed by such a great price, by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that has freed us from all of these things, that we might be free from them in order to live to God. And we need to remind ourselves of this regularly. And so that's re- salvation as redemption. But secondly, things that cannot redeem, and that can be covered rather quickly here. It's given to us in verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Things that cannot redeem money, things that cannot redeem behavior, things that cannot redeem religion. Money cannot save us. Salvation cannot be bought. We cannot be, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Silver and gold represent the most valuable, the most durable commodities upon earth. If the most valuable, the most durable, are unable to redeem, then nothing else can either. No other material thing can either. You can't be redeemed by anything in this world, by any money, by any price, 
by any material thing. Why? Because they're all perishable. They belong to this passing age. Even silver and gold are simply attached to this passing age and will one day pass away. One way you can tell when a religion is false is because it often attaches some element of material purchase alongside faith in order to be saved, particularly corruptions of the Christian religion. Not too many corruptions come along and say, it has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and it has nothing to do with faith. It's entirely something that you earn or purchase, but there are corruptions that will make it a combination of the two. And you need to realize that there is nothing about redemption that can be purchased with money. Sometimes wealthy people have difficulty with that concept, but you have to nail that down. Your money might buy many things in this world, but it cannot buy you one day in heaven. It cannot purchase your redemption. Been, oh, more than 25 years ago now, I suppose, Some of you, just a very few of you will remember when we were trying to raise money to build a fellowship hall. Walt Atkins, I remember, came up with the idea of the 25 Keys to Victory campaign. And we were trying to raise $25,000 as a start. That was a lot of money back in those days. And um, trying to find people who would give $1,000 and get a key. And if you couldn't get one, get half a key or whatever. And I remember my wife and I were so strapped in those days. Our budget was so tight we couldn't scrape up money like that. We actually borrowed the money, I think $500, I don't remember, in order to participate in that. I don't recommend that. That really isn't wise, but we did that. We borrowed money to give. And it was so tight. And I, I emphasize that to, to make you understand what was happening next. There was a a man who had visited our church just a few times, and he called me up one day, and he wanted to know if I would perform a wedding ceremony for him, and I would ask him a few questions about his proposed marriage, and it became very quickly clear that there were a lot of questions about this uh, second or third marriage and so forth and so on, and I, after talking to him, I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I really would not be able to do that, and he said, well, there goes the $1,000 that I was going to give to your campaign. Well, we did without it, and we built the fellowship hall by the help and grace of God and built it debt-free. The kitchen wasn't finished for a couple of years because we ran out of money, and we had to wait till we could get money to put cupboards and, and appliances in the kitchen, but that God enabled us to do that. But you see, sometimes people who have money, they, uh, they throw it around that way, and I'm afraid sometimes they're under the illusion that they can buy their way into heaven. You cannot do it. We're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Nor are we redeemed by human behavior. Salvation cannot be earned. Not even the best of our inherited traditions and customs and behavior that have been handed down to us from our forefathers can earn us salvation. And many of these things are good from a human standpoint. They're not all bad from a human standpoint, you understand. Sometimes we're taught to be good neighbors and to live by the golden rule and to be socially involved in our community. And those are good things. 
but they will not redeem our soul. I fear sometimes when I see these long obituaries in the paper, you know the ones I'm talking about that just go on for column after column after column, all the many things that that person has done. I don't know their heart, but I fear sometimes that that person is and his um, loved ones are trying to demonstrate how good a person he or she was and how surely they must be in heaven because of all of these good things which they have done. But that will never, never redeem you. You can't be redeemed by that. All of these things are futile as a means of salvation. They're totally useless when it comes to salvation. I found this quotation by somebody named Ari Wheeler. I don't know who he is. But he said, if I had the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, the meekness of Moses, the strength of Samson, the obedience of Abraham, the compassion of Joseph, the tears of Jeremiah, the poetic skill of David, the prophetic voice of Elijah, the courage of Daniel, the greatness of John the Baptist, the endurance and love of Paul, I would still need redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins. We're not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold received by tradition from your fathers. We're not, we're not saved by religion. Ancestral religion or, or even, even inherited Christian religion because salvation cannot be transferred from one person to another. Salvation cannot be bestowed by a religion. Salvation cannot be bestowed by a church, by a Christian institution. Nobody can pronounce you saved. Nobody can give you salvation. No ritual can save you. Whether it's baptism or church membership or anything else, nothing that man can do can save you. It's Christ alone. The precious blood of Christ is the only thing that can pay the price. That's the only thing that can redeem us. Christ, the one sent from God, the only one qualified and able and willing to save hell-deserving sinners. And he did it, number one, by his sinless life, and number two, by his atoning death. His sinless life as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Without blemish. No character defect in him. He was born sinless. Without inherited depravity. Without spot. Unstained by the evil around him throughout his entire lifetime. Walking among men. Walking in a sinful world. Tempted Many times, frequently, by the sin that was all around him, but never yielding, never sinning, not one time, a perfect lamb without blemish, without spot, the true type of the paschal lamb, the antitype of the paschal lamb, which was the type. You can examine a lamb and pronounce it without blemish and without spot, but that's only relatively so. There's something wrong with every animal, just like there's something wrong with every human being. But there's one that had no blight, sin, defect on his soul, on his character, anywhere whatsoever. And he is the God-man. There was nobody in the human realm who could qualify. So God had to send one from heaven to qualify and sent his son to become a man. And Christ's sinless life therefore became a vicarious life, a substitutionary life of righteousness in the place of our failed righteousness. 
And Christ's atoning death became a vicarious death. His payment, his death upon the cross, a substitutionary payment in the place of the payment that we owed. With the precious blood of Christ, not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, with the precious, the timios blood of Christ. Remember the Greek word for that payment? Timae. Timae, the payment of the price. Peter says it was not the timae of silver and gold. It is the timae of the timios blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. There's a little play on words here in the original language. And Christ's blood is more valuable than silver or gold. And it's valuable because of the nature of the one who paid the ransom. It's valuable because of who he is. The God-man, the infinite one, and the perfect man. And his life blood was poured out in death. Blood had to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But his blood poured out was efficacious because it represented his atoning death. If Jesus had cut his finger during his earthly ministry and his blood had had, uh, spilled on someone else, that would have, have availed them nothing in regard to salvation. If when the Roman soldier thrust that spear up into his side and blood and water came out, if some of that blood had spilled upon the Roman soldier, that would not have availed him anything. But you see, it is the blood poured out in his atoning death and that avails all who lay hold of Christ by faith. Again, the picture of the sacrificial lamb. When the priest, when the priest would, would uh, sacrifice the, the lamb for the sinner, the sinner would place his hands upon the head of the animal to indicate that he was transferring his guilt from himself to the, to the animal, and the animal would vicariously die in his place. And that's what we do. We, by faith, lay hold of Christ. We pay, place our hands upon Christ. This is the way Isaac Watts put it. My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine, while like a penitent I stand, and there confess my sin. That's in the song, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience, peace, or wash away the stain. But when by faith we lay our soul, as it were, upon Christ on the cross, and by faith our guilt is transferred to Him, then His death, His shed blood, becomes the redemption price for us. And it is a perfect price. It is a satisfactory price. It's the required price that redeems sinners Unto God. And thus his blood removes our judicial guilt before God. And it's only Christ's blood that could have done that. Now let's see how to apply our text. The main point of the text is to remind us that godly living should flow from gratitude to God, to Christ, for such great cost that he paid in order to secure our redemption. It's interesting that when he gets to the reasons for living holy lives, Peter starts with the fear of judgment in verse 17. 
Because fear many times is a more powerful motive to us than gratitude. But that's only further evidence of our sinful condition. It really shouldn't be. Fear shouldn't be the most powerful motive. It's probably the most powerful motive because of our sinful pride. We think about the possibility of being humiliated in that day of judgment. And that that really shakes us to our core. What others might think of us in that day. But that shouldn't be our strongest motive. Our strongest motive ought to be gratitude for the great price. What difference does it make if we are humiliated, if our humiliation brings greater glory to God? If the, the utter wickedness and depravity of the sinner becomes the backdrop against the greatness of God's love and free grace, shines all the brighter, and his honor and glory becomes more conspicuous because it is seen what great sinners he redeemed. That would bring honor and glory to him. Why should we deny him that? But that shouldn't be our greatest motive, not the judgment. It should be gratitude. The high cost of our redemption should be a greater motive. Not just reverential awe because of judgment, but deep gratitude and wonder at what God has done. It ought to cause us to birth forth into songs of praise. I will sing of my Redeemer and his precious love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered, paid the debt, and made me free. Sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer. That ought to be what is rising from our hearts at this time. What God has done. And if we're going to have this kind of gratitude rising from our hearts, I think we need to emphasize the concept of redemption more than we do. Redemption is really more specific and more powerful than the concept of saved, which is a big word and is therefore sometimes a little bit nebulous. We ask people, have you been saved? How many times have you ever asked anybody, have you been redeemed? But I am redeemed. And that points to the greatness of the cost. I am redeemed. It cost God. His son, in order to secure my salvation. And if you're here today unsaved, outside of Christ, as far as you know, unsure of your standing with God, you need to realize that your whole way of life is a maze of fruitless wanderings that lead to destruction. It doesn't matter what path you go down, the religious path, the educational path, the moral path, the social path, it doesn't matter what path you go down, the path of gaining honor and wealth in this world, the path of giving your life and service to others in this world. Whatever path you go down is a fruitless maze of endless wanderings leading to destruction until you're freed from all of that and place all of your hopes upon Jesus Christ and him alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter how sweet, how wonderful, how good that frame may be. It's just a rickety frame. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And if you're here today outside of Christ, you need to recognize your need. It doesn't matter how good you may think yourself to be or others may think you to be. How moral, how noble you are. You are 
lost. You are in bondage to sin. You need to be saved. You need to be redeemed. And you need to go to Christ. And if you from sin are longing to be free, look to the Lamb of God. The spotless Lamb who died on Calvary that sinners might be saved. Shall we pray? How great is our sin, how great is our guilt, how great is our bondage outside of Christ, O Lord. And what a great price you paid to redeem us from our sin, our guilt, our old way of life. O Lord, forgive us for not having our hearts so full of gratitude that we sing your praises every waking moment. Forgive us, O Lord, for ever wanting to return to that old way of life from which you have freed us, redeeming us out of that former way of life into a brand new way of life. O Lord God, help us to glorify you by walking in the light and demonstrating our love for you and our gratitude for all that you have done. And Lord, for those who are outside of Christ, show them Christ. Draw them to Christ by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.